Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning, Vox. Hi, hi, hi. Is everybody outside? Tell everybody to come inside. Hi, Susan. You guys are back. They've been traveling Europe. So, poshy living their life. Why did you guys go again for holiday? Was it like an anniversary thing? Or no? I feel like that was something, but it was just all encompassed. Friends, anniversary, just get out of America. Got it. And it was fun. Well, we're glad to have you back. I know I want to live there too. Um, I mean, I say I want to live there, but then I'd miss everybody. And I did live there and I couldn't understand what people were saying because I lived in Germany and it was very difficult. Um, It's very isolating. I actually had to go to therapy for it for a little bit. So I don't know if I want to live there actually. Uh, Well, welcome this morning. We're sure glad to have you guys here. Um, My name is Carrie. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Vox. Um, I get the honor to share with you guys uh, once in a while and um, also get the honor of um, doing some of our care workshops. And we're going to kind of get into that this morning. But I do have some announcements for you. Gosh, I can't see you guys with these glasses on. I forget about that. Um, So we have a some announcements this morning. One is our Vox dinners. So, um, oh, it's already up there. Look at that. You are so on it. Uh, Our Vox dinners are a place where we come together once a month and we just have dinner together. Like I think when Jesus said, hey, feed your neighbor, like I just think he meant, you know, just feed your neighbor. Like, I, I don't know why we have to complicate it. Um, so we want to come around the table, have dinner together and just have conversation and hang out and talk. And that's what is so amazing about um, Vox is it doesn't have to be, or just even the body of Christ, it doesn't have to be this like, we have to talk about all these spiritual things and we're just going to have dinner together. And I don't know if you're like me, but when you have people over for dinner or you go over to someone's house for dinner and you start, you just start chatting. Food does that. You just kind of start talking about stuff and life and your kids and your marriage, or maybe you just get into work or whatever. And so this is a beautiful space to just kind of create relationship and um, community around the table. So if you are interested in signing up um, to be a part of Vox Dinners, they're doing them once a month. You can go to voxoc.com and um, there's several places around the county that are hosting them. So that would be something that I would really encourage you to check out, get a part of. It's kind of a great next step into just how do we take what's happening here? Because this is not the end result, right? This is the very beginning result. This is like get your Sunday morning is like get your toe wet, but you're not going to like create in community in these rows. It's just not going to happen. So let's let's step into a little more community and and join those um, Vox dinners if you felt if you feel like that would be a great next step for you. And secondly, I want to chat with you guys a little bit this morning about what we've been doing here at Vox kind of outside of the Sunday mornings and um, share with you a little bit. So for three times now, we have done Vox workshops and um, they have been geared around a specific subject. How many have gone to a Vox workshop? Like a lot of you. Yeah. And um, they've been 
highly attended, which is amazing. Um, not that it's like, look how many numbers we've had, but we've had over 50 people at every single one, which shows us there's a need. Um, and it's something that you're desiring. We actually took kind of a survey from all of you. What are your needs? What are your wants? What are your desires? And 80% of you came back with the need to want to dive deeper into some coaching, even some counseling, um, and have some workshops based on these specific topics. So out of these Vox workshops, as my brain is working um, and, Vo and all of Vox's leadership brain is working, is how can we continue the conversation? The workshops are great. They're two hours, but really they just kind of open us up to going, what do we do next? How do we take this a little deeper? And so what we have created, um, what Freedom Movement, the organization, the nonprofit that I run, um, is partnering up further with Vox, which is just my heartbeat, is to be a tool for the church um, and to come along the church and create process groups um, for men and for women. And so it's a continued conversation. And a lot of you have been asking, what are process groups? What's going to be happening in those? And really, a lot of it is to equip you not only to um, have better conversations with the people that you love and to really kind of get to know yourself better, but what happens when a friend comes up and says, I'm struggling with depression, I'm struggling with anxiety. And the question isn't, will that happen? It's when will that happen? Um, and we want to equip you for that. You know, Sunday, I think uh, the, the church, in, in, in essence, has done a disservice by putting so much of their energy into this, this space right here, the Sunday morning space. And don't get me wrong, I love the Sunday morning space. But again, you're not going to get better. You're not going to you know, get healed. The mental health part of you is not going to engage in these rows. It's just not. It's a catalytic tool to be able to get you into further community and further conversation. So I'm encouraging you guys to, to really think about like, uh, what is my next step? And these process groups are going to help you with that. Um, they use, they're short term. They usually run about eight to 10 weeks. We have two that are running right now. We have one for men. Um, that is called Bricklayers. It's going to be led by Jeff Myers, who uh, works for me at Freedom Movement. And he has been trained under um, Dr. Townsend, who not only does um, has trained him to do process groups for church and church leaders, but also for men in corporate America, really helping how do we engage in conversation? Um, how are my communication skills? Um, and just really am processing through that. I know a lot of you men are like, I'm not trying to go to therapy. And, and this is not therapy, okay? We, we are not therapists. We just want to help engage in the conversation. So even if you've gone through a ton of therapy and you feel like, man, I really know myself, even if you've never gone to therapy and you're like, I don't know myself, is this group for me? Yes, and here's why. Because men, whether you know it or not, you need each other. You need to sit with other men and know you're not alone. You need to be able to know like, like, hey, I'm kind of thinking this, help me process through this and have a safe place to do that. If this is the safest place to talk about anything and all we do is have someone on a Sunday morning talk at you, then we're really not following out the desire of what our church is standing for. So I wanna encourage you, we are, do have a limited number of spots um, for bricklayers um, and we have a limited number of spots for the women's group, which is the exchange 
exchange process group. It's actually going through um, the work course, workbook course that I wrote. Um, we're going to cover in the women's group through um, grieving, understanding what that even means, forgiveness, trust, surrender, what victory actually means. I do a lot of the video teaching there. And Laura Weber, who also works for me, is a spiritual director. She has a master's in spiritual direction. And she's going to actually help process through that group um, conversation in that group. It's, it's I've ran five groups now, and I'm telling you, on the other side of that, um, it's just beautiful conversation. Getting to know yourself a little bit better, but getting to know the people around you, getting communication schools, tools so that you can go out into the world and effectively love people um, with a little more freedom. So these groups normally cost $300 um, per person, but here's the beautiful thing. That Vox so believes not only in your spiritual health, but in your mental health, that they have partnered with Freedom Movement and said, look, we're gonna cover half of that for everybody. We want them to come. We want them to be able to go. So um, for the process group for women starts this Tuesday, and there's like five spots left, I think. Um, starts this Tuesday. Uh, it will run for nine weeks. The girls get an extra extra week. Um, we just need more time. Um, so that one starts this Tuesday and it's $150. You can sign up at voxoc.com backslash workshops. The men's starts not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday that will run for eight weeks. Again, that is also $150. Isn't it cool to be a part of a church that says, you know, we, I love missions. I love going out. We love, you know, helping people go out. But Vox is looking at our community and going, where is our money best spent? And that is in the building up and healing up of the people in this seats because we believe that the more free you become, the more freedom you share with others because free people just free people. Hurt people hurt people. So we want to encourage you. I know some of you men are on the fence. And women, it's not a hard sell for you. You'll talk all day. But men, I know, you know, for me, I, I want to sit here as, as a wife, as a daughter, as a sister. To have your voice in our life is so impactful and powerful. And I know for some of you, the struggle is, I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to communicate. I know when you, some of you go into your workplaces and, and, and you, you don't exactly know how to communicate what you're thinking or maybe even what you're feeling. This is the place to do that and it's safe and we've provided it for you. Not because we think it's a need, but honestly because you said it was. So I would really ask you to pray about it and consider if you have questions about it, I'm gonna be at the black little black table in the foyer. I have some flyers that if you wanna take with you, but I'd encourage you to sign up. Those spaces are limited. Again, it's $150 just to see a coach in our center is, um, is $100 for one session. So you're getting eight. Um, we just really wanted to make it affordable for you to be able to get um, starting the conversation. And this is what we believe here at Vox, that that's what's important. So. I've talked long enough about that. Would you just nod your head if you heard me and understand? Because sometimes when it's a little, thank you for clapping, Susan. <laughs> because it's important, right? You're not clapping for me. You're clapping for this idea that like, oh, wow, a church actually cares about our mental health. Because we spend a lot of time on our spiritual health and we really we really avoid our mental health. And that doesn't mean you have to, you know, be a nut job to come, you know, we're all nut jobs, so it doesn't really matter. Um, we all need help. So, okay, 
Thanks for listening to that. I sure hope I'm praying for you. I have a couple of men and women that are praying um, for you to join. They, they really see it and as a need. And so we're just praying that you guys would, that you would step in that all of you would, um, that that would we be able to come. So with that, we want to welcome you this morning. This is a place where you are welcome and you are loved and you truly are safe here. We really actually are putting our money where our mouth is <laughs> and you are safe here. Uh, this morning, I want you just to breathe. I want you just to know that you are loved in this space and that what we're about to encounter this morning is not through our coercion or manipulation of your worship this morning. It's just you in a safe place to encounter God wherever you are, wherever you are, whether you're angry with God, whether you're happy with God, whether you don't know God, whether you love God, and I guess you're crushing it for the kingdom. I don't really even know what that means. People wear shirts, killing it for the kingdom. I'm like, it's so aggressive. Um, But kill it. That's what you need to do. Um, but you're just, you're just welcome here. You're just welcome here. And um, I, gosh, I sure hope that this creates a culture change in our culture, don't you? That that the church would look like this, where it's a safe place to talk and it's a safe place to be, no matter where you're at. So we just want to welcome you this morning. We have some great teaching this morning by Will. I love Will. Will and I geek out on scripture and Greek and geeky things, and I love it because not a lot of people want to do that with me. And so I'm so excited for you to hear from him this morning. One of the things that we value here is questions. So Will is going to answer some questions. If you have questions for us, you can always text in your questions and Will or me or Ronnie or someone from the teaching staff will try to answer it, right? Try is the we'll key try. word, yes, right. Try. Right. try. Right, so I've taken enough of your time and you have so much to say this morning. Hey, Carrie preached a sermon already. I'm just gonna add a little <laughs> bit to it. That's normal. There we go. All right, thanks Will. All right, uh, but really it's such a blessing to have Carrie here um, that we can have these process groups. Uh, how many of you have already been a part of uh, kind of what she's doing? Okay, yeah, a lot of us. Um, it's such a blessing to have her here. So we're going to start with Q&A this morning, and we only have one question, which is actually great because it's a, a really great question, and it's really deep. So let's look at it. Luke, writing his two books of the Bible sounds more like a graduate student doing a research paper rather than someone inspired by God. What are your thoughts? Okay, what a great question. I love this question. If you missed last week, Ronnie kicked off a series in Acts, and he's referencing Luke here. Luke wrote two books in the Bible, right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Book of Acts. And I think where this question comes from is Luke chapter one, he tells us how he wrote both of these works. Right? It's a little bit confusing because the Gospel of John is stuck in between Luke and Acts, but really they go together. Luke and Acts are one work in two volumes. And Luke says this in his intro, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses. Um, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, so right there in this intro, I think that's where they're getting this research paper, right? A lot of data gathering, because what Luke says is, number one, there's a lot of other accounts of Jesus out there. 
that have been passed down to him. He says, I've researched those accounts, I've investigated them, and then he's compiled them. He says, I am now writing my own orderly account of all of these Jesus stories. And the question is, how can that type of research also be said to be inspired by God? Okay, so that's the question. And I love it because implicit in that question is, I think an assumption a lot of us have about what it means that the Bible is inspired. A lot of times at a church, they'll, they'll read the passage and then they'll say the word of God, the word of the Lord. Um, what do we mean when we say that? That's at the heart of this question. Um, a simple, I think, definition of inspiration is that the words in the Bible are God's very words. That this is exactly what he wanted to speak to us But here's the common assumption. We often assume, okay, if the Bible's inspired, then that means that the author was probably sitting there someday and God sort of zapped him, right? Zapped his brain. All of a sudden he came to and the blank scroll that was in front of him is now filled with truth and wisdom and words, right? Because to be inspired by God, there has to be this miraculous, supernatural, mystical sort of phenomenon. Um, And a lot of religions actually have this belief, uh, this backstory to their scriptures. So for example, in Mormonism, you have Joseph Smith, the founder, receiving these golden tablets, these golden plates from the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith, Mormons don't believe he wrote uh, the Book of Mormon. They believe he just translated it, but it was actually literally dropped from the sky, so to speak, into his hands. Okay, if you look at Islam, the Quran, There's something called the miracle of Quran because Muhammad was actually illiterate. He couldn't read or write. And the miracle of Quran to a Muslim is the fact that this illiterate man supernaturally produced this body of work. So do you see how that kind of both uh, Mormonism and Islam are are hand in hand in that? Christianity is completely different. Okay, you, you do have writers of the Bible because it tells us that God said, hey, write this down and they wrote it down. Um, There are examples of that, but that's not how it usually works. Humans are not just passive vessels in the writing of the Bible, but they're actually participants. So God will, it's amazing when we say the Bible's inspired, God doesn't just uh, inspire the, the actual writing of the words on the page, but he inspires everything surrounding it. Think of inspiration less as just writing words, think of it as a, as a process. I think that's a helpful way. So God is in the research. God inspires the research and he inspires the words. The words come out of the research. And so when you read the Bible, what you'll notice is no two books are the same. Why is that? Because the personality of every author is allowed to come through, to shine through the text. So God uses the education level of the author. He uses the background. He uses their social network. All of the aspects of their lives come together as they write the scriptures and God doesn't just steamroll over them and download information into their brains, but he allows them uh, to, to write out of their own experiences. And a lot of Christians are afraid of that because they think, well, unless God's just directly downloading this information, then what if there's errors? What if there's mistakes, right? Humans are really jacked up. So if humans are participants in the inspiration or the, or the writing of the Bible, then how do we know we can trust it? And these are huge questions, but two quick thoughts. Um, 
we trust the Bible mainly because Jesus did. When you listen to his words, uh, the more you examine what Jesus says, you start realizing, oh my goodness, he's quoting the Old Testament. Oh my goodness, he's pulling that theme right out of the Old Testament. Jesus slaps his endorsement on every part of the Old Testament. Secondly, for the New Testament, why do we trust it? Because those who wrote it were close to Jesus. They were either direct disciples or just a little bit removed who knew those disciples. And when the early church came to a place where they had to ask this question, which scriptures do we take seriously? Which do we say are inspired by God? They didn't pick the books. What they did was they recognized these 27 books of the New Testament have been used for centuries. And every single one, they had a criteria, every single one was written by someone close to Jesus. And that's how they came to that decision. And so to summarize it, again, amazing question. Why would we say Luke's research is inspired by God? Because God doesn't just inspire the words themselves. He inspires the research that leads to the words. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. Inspiration is so much bigger than we give it credit for. We think, oh, it's just God writing, uh, having you know, people write stuff down. But no, God is orchestrating the details of these authors' lives. He's orchestrating their perspectives. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to take in. And we don't have to be afraid of the human fingerprint in the Bible. If anything, um, that's a confirmation that God works in the everyday. And I, I love looking at that. All right, so onward we go in our Acts series. We're gonna be in Acts chapter two. Ronnie did an incredible job last week of, of kicking us off. And um, Acts chapter two is a very interesting chapter. I'm just gonna go ahead and read it through. And then we're going to sort of walk through it piece by piece. I'll be in uh, starting in verse one. It's up on the screen if you want to read there. Okay, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is the disciples. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, here we go. There's a lot of, there's a lot of names coming up, okay? Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Here we go. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. Aren't you glad you're not reading this? Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. <laughs> okay, wow. You know, when you read this story, something that immediately jumps out at modern people like us are the miracles. Like there's a lot of strange stuff happening in this passage and uh, a lot of weird theology comes out of passages like this 
Because what people assume is, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, then I'm going to have to somehow reproduce these miraculous signs in my life. That's what happened here, and so that's obviously what's gonna have to happen in my life. And that actually misses the point, because um, these signs didn't happen in and of themselves, but they point to uh, some really important realities and truths. And so I think how we'll walk through the passages, we'll look at the three signs that happened, wind, tongues, speaking in other languages. And we'll talk about what they point to because this story is all about how the Holy Spirit is filling God's people. And there can be a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. Some circles of Christianity, it feels like that's all they talk about. Anyone have that background? Okay, a couple of you. And then in other circles, it's like never talked about. And at Vox, we're probably a little more on that side of things than the obsessive side. Um, But as we walk through the story, um, our approach is gonna be really simple. We're just going to let the passage guide our thinking. Acts chapter two is not exhaustive, meaning it doesn't tell us everything that we could possibly know about the Holy Spirit. But what it does do is it gives us these big picture realities that if you claim Jesus and you follow him and you love him, these are things that are so precious for you to know. And that maybe in the noise of Christian culture or different church traditions, you've either been turned off or confused or like the people in Acts 2, you're asking, what does this mean? And hopefully we'll uncover a couple things as we go along. Um, And I think there's three things we'll see. Inward transformation, a worldwide message, and new intimacy with God. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, there's an inward transformation, there's a worldwide message, and there's a new intimacy with God. So that's what we're gonna look at. All right, um, now before we dive into those three signs, the wind, the fire, and the the languages, um, I just want you to, to see, like if you were to look at the whole picture of the story of the Bible, and you were looking for peaks in the story, like really important moments, this would be one of them. In fact, in the Old Testament, Acts chapter two and when the Holy Spirit comes was predicted and there was a sense in which God's people had been longing for this moment for generations. And so I could take you to a ton of examples. I'm just gonna show you one. And this is in Ezekiel chapter 36. So this is an Old Testament passage looking ahead at when God would bring his Holy Spirit. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Beautiful words. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The Old Testament looked forward to this day and so did Jesus. I wanna take you to a couple places in the Gospels and even Acts chapter one, right before where we are today, where this moment is is looked forward to. So Luke uh, 3.16, okay, this is John the Baptist who was the, the prophet who announced Jesus was coming. John says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Are you seeing the connection already between what he says and what happened in Acts 2? Okay, then Jesus, let's look at two quick things he said. 
Next one, Luke 24. Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter one, Jesus gets even more clear. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what makes Acts chapter two this big moment is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's actually happening. It's, it's really here, the moment has come. And really, this is what makes the difference between being an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer is the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is a, a huge transition in the story. And so uh, let's, let's dive into the first sign. Let's look at the wind in, um, where are we at here? Verse one and two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. All right, so the occasion here is Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. And the reason it was called that is it happened 50 days after the Passover. And do you guys remember what happened on the Passover? What, what, what happened? The, the Passover happened on the Passover. <laughs> True. Good point. Okay, okay, good. Yes, the origin of Passover is in Exodus, but the very last Passover was the Last Supper, right? 50 days ago, Jesus was sitting in a room with his disciples. It's only 50 days later that this takes place. And Jesus has just, it's a really fascinating scene. He gives his disciples instructions in Acts 1, and he says, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, and then he literally ascends into the heavens, and they're standing there bewildered, wondering, oh my goodness, what just happened? And Jesus says, I'm gonna send the Spirit. And here it comes in the first thing that happens in Acts 2, the first sign that the Spirit is on its way is a wind blowing. In fact, it's not really a wind. If you notice, if you look closely, it says something like the sound of blowing wind. In other words, this is the best Luke can do. He's like, it sounded like wind. It wasn't exactly wind. Um, and he also says it was violent. The sound of it was violent. And so this is a conversation stopper, right? These guys are sitting here in the room, they're talking, and this explosive sound of, of wind tears through the place. And in my mind, this takes me back to being a kid growing up in Phoenix. We don't have tornadoes there, but we have these freakish storm systems called microbursts. And they, uh, they come usually really quickly. And I remember as a kid, there was one, the first one I remember experiencing, winds well over 100 miles an hour, power goes off, tiles are ripping off of our roof. And me, my sister, my mom and dad are huddled in the bathroom together uh, in the dark, just listening to this wind terrorize our house. And I literally thought I was going to die that night. Uh, it's such a strong memory. And that furious, powerful sound of wind is what the disciples are hearing. Why wind? Why would God bring wind right before the Holy Spirit comes? It's fascinating. When you look at the word for wind in both Hebrew and Greek, actually, in Hebrew, it's ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. And do you know what else those words can mean besides wind? They mean spirit. The only way you know which it's referring to is the context. 
but they are the exact words for spirit. So this wind starts blowing and it's almost a preview of what's happening. And then don't miss this. Where does the wind come from? From heaven. Why does Luke specify from heaven? Well, because he wants to make it absolutely clear. This, this wind, it's not some freak storm that blew through. This is actually divine. It's not human in origin, but it's coming from God. And this is actually a, a key point in understanding the spirit and something that I think is helpful for us to think about. Transformation never comes from within us, from our own power. Transformation comes from God giving us his power and transforms us from the inside out. And that's the reverse of what we're taught. Um, Often what you hear, especially in American culture, we love self-esteem mentalities, right? You have what it takes. You know, other people are talented in the world, but we tell our kids often, but you are the one. You are special. Right, you got second place, well, the other kid cheated because you're a champion. <laughs> oh, it was the referee's fault, whatever it is. And, uh, but on a serious note, we really believe often that we have what it takes to change our lives. And Luke says, what's about to happen was not the disciples waking up, mustering their strength, finding some inner power. This was a wind from heaven. This is God literally breathing down his spirit, and that's how things happen. That's how transformation happens, the, the inward transformation. And our problem is that we're determined to find solutions on earth that only come from heaven. And that's what the spirit is about, is transformation. One of the best diagnoses or descriptions of the human condition actually comes in the book of Jeremiah. So let me read you this verse. Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And without the Spirit's power in our lives, we're hopeless. We all have this sense that something's not completely right in us, if we're honest. It's not hard to look around at the world and see that things aren't good. But the question is, what do we do about that? And the answer is not try harder. The answer is not strive to be a good person. The answer is you need an absolute heart transplant that only the Spirit of God can bring. And if you want to see your anger be transformed into gentleness, if you want to replace your lust with a vision of the world that sees other people as dignified and image bearers, if you want to transform your selfishness into servanthood, that only happens through the Spirit. That's what he does. He transforms hard hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. And all of us probably want that, but we're like, okay, so am I supposed to listen for the supernatural wind? Am I supposed to feel the breeze? Because I've never experienced that. And this is where Luke is very helpful. We have to realize that Acts chapter two is a big moment in the story. God pulls out all the stops in a way. He's like, I'm not gonna let this moment go by without some signs and some miraculous things. But did you know that Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer? And most of the time, how does the Spirit operate in the everyday and in the silence? 
And so Luke loves to tell us about how Jesus did things in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes here and Luke says it was in the power of the Spirit. Jesus does something or says something and Luke tells us the Spirit guided him. But it's almost God's power working in the background and so friends, don't mistake the silence for absence. When the Spirit is working in your life, much of the time we're not even aware of it. It's sort of like those growth metrics, you know, you make a chalk mark above a kid's head and you can't see them growing, but after a while you go back and you can, you can see the progress. That's how the Spirit works. But the greatest miracle of Acts 2 is not the rushing wind, it's not the fire, it's not the speaking in languages. The greatest miracle is the transformation of the human heart. That's the most miraculous thing the Spirit does because we know how stubborn human beings are. We know how solidified we are in our habits and in our thought patterns and the fact that the Spirit comes in and does something about that is incredible. It's amazing. And so let's go on to verse three to the second sign. Luke says this. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now we're gonna come back to the second sign, to the fire in a minute. Um, Let's go on to the third. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so here we see that the Spirit brings a worldwide message. And I love this because this is an attention grabber. Okay, God in his wisdom waits for Pentecost which was a time when Jews from all over the world came together into one place. Why would God wait until that moment? Because he had something planned. And imagine if you were in a country that didn't speak English, you hadn't heard anyone utter English for days, and you're walking through town and suddenly you hear someone speaking in your language and there's a commotion Okay, this was drawing a crowd. People didn't quite understand what was going on and so they come in to get a better look and they're absolutely stopped in their tracks. And something interesting that scholars have noticed about the story is normally ancient writers are really brief, right? They give you the main point and then they move on quickly. But Luke lists all of these people and places, which I read for you and probably slaughtered half of the names of them. Why does Luke go to the trouble to name all of these places? Right, if if ancient writing is usually brief, I mean, he he clearly slows down to tell us, oh, these people were here and people from this region were here and it was everyone coming together. And the answer is not, again, the point's not that, oh, everyone just happened to be speaking other languages, it was really cool. The point is, well, what were they speaking? And he tells us, he says, they were declaring the wonders of God. In other words, the gospel. They were talking about the message of Jesus. And suddenly, they're able, these disciples are able to communicate in other languages they've never learned to tell people about Jesus. What does this mean? Back to the crowd's question. What is God doing here? What does this show us about being filled with the Holy Spirit? And it shows us that God's heart is for the entire world. The gospel knows no barrier of language or religion or culture. There's not one culture that is superior to others. Notice that God doesn't steamroll over the languages of the world and say, 
If you wanna worship me, if you wanna know me, you're gonna have to speak this special language. Instead, what God does is he reaches out to everyone in their native tongues. God's heart is for the world, and, and what's amazing about the story is it's actually a reversal, a turning on its head of the Tower of Babel. And if you're unfamiliar with that story, it's in Genesis 11. God has said to humanity, I want you to be fruitful, have sex, multiply, and fill the earth because I wanna bless you and I want you to go experience my world. And the people in Genesis 11 say, no, we don't wanna do that. Instead, we wanna bunch together in rebellion, God, and we actually wanna build this tower uh, as a statement of our greatness. And so God says, okay. And what he does is he confuses their languages. So suddenly they can't communicate anymore. And as a result, they kind of pick up and they move on and they congregate with other people who can't understand them. And that's the Tower of Babel. Acts chapter two is God reversing that. Do you see that? If, If you are gonna look at Genesis 11 and say, well, that's harsh, God, to confuse those languages then see Acts 2 and see that all along God's heart was for the nations and that God is now stepping in here at this point in the story and saying, I am bringing back together what Babel drove apart. And that's what the Spirit does. And so um, this continues on through the whole story of the Bible, this idea that the gospel is it doesn't show favoritism, but it's for all people, all cultures, all languages, all backgrounds. In Revelation, we get a picture of what worship will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the things that we see there is that worship's gonna happen with people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And I think we would all agree that that sounds great, right? We're, this idea of a multicultural worship family sounds wonderful. I mean, we're here in progressive California, right? We're more open-minded than a lot of other places. That all sounds good. Um, But what does this really mean practically? If being filled with the Holy Spirit means unity with really the world, um, what does that look like? And I wanna give us just a couple things quickly. One, it means the death of superiority. And this is challenging for us. But Vox, we are not the only expression of church. We are not the best expression of church. We are an expression of church. And I think part of being filled with the Spirit brings this humility that we have so much to learn from Christians in China, in India, and South America, and the churches right down the street in our cities and in our towns, and man, I love Vox, and I'm guessing you probably do too, because you're here. Um, But we will do our best to honor Jesus, but we will do it imperfectly. That we are not the body of Christ, we are part of it. And so, part of the spirit and and what he brings is is that humility. In fact, I heard a, a good analogy this week of the fact that Many of us, and and we get this in this community, I I probably wouldn't share this everywhere, but for us, I think it really lands. We've seen the ugly sort of underbelly of what churches can do, some of us have. We've walked away from that, and we're we're looking for a safe place, and whether it's Vox or somewhere else, 
And what happens is we, we get to a new place where the ugliness of, of yesterday isn't quite as ugly in this new location. So we put our feet in the sand and we say, I am never leaving again. This is my place. And the, the analogy is this, that as beautiful as one community can be, when you do that, you stop looking up and down the shoreline and you miss the panorama and the beauty of what God is doing in churches around the world and around America and down the street. And trust me, Vox, you don't wanna miss that. Even if there's some ugliness out there, realize there's also ugliness in here. Stick around long enough, you'll see it. From me, first and foremost, from another pastor, from the person sitting next to you, and the Spirit says, we all have something to learn from each other, whether it's international, national, or on the neighborhood level. Okay, the next one, um, this uh, worldwide universal message of the Spirit. It means we sacrifice our preferences. Um, you know, there's this idealism that says, well, if everyone's in the room, you know, we're gonna mix cultures, we're gonna eat each other's food and admire each other's clothing, and it's gonna be super fun, one big party. But if we're honest, what is unity in diversity really look like? It looks like not being able to do things exactly like you want to. Okay, just watch two churches, maybe two different um, ethnicities coming together and watch how that works. You'll see a lot of joy and you'll see a lot of awkwardness. And it's a beautiful thing. But we have to be prepared to give up our agenda much of the time. And then last one, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate what we have in common. One of the most beautiful things the Spirit will do, and it's being exemplified right here, right now, is all these people that would never normally be together, that maybe have little else in common, can come together around the gospel. That's what unity looks like. That's what the Spirit brings. It's a, it's a worldwide message that we share. And there's a cheap version of unity out there that says, you know, the only thing that matters is that we come together. Um, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Uh, none of that matters. We just want to hang out. And again, we want to eat each other's food, admire each other's clothing. And there is certainly a place for that sort of engagement, absolutely. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is when we come together as Jesus followers to worship side by side, different tongues, different languages, um, different cultures, what we're centered on is the beauty of Jesus. And for centuries, Christians around the world have agreed on these precious truths like Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus died, that he rose again, that he gives his spirit to believers. We celebrate those things in common. We hold them to be precious. And we realize that, man, Acts 2 is God's heart for the world. As he transmits his words into other languages, that's his heart, and so that's our heart too. Okay, verse 13. I love this. So the Spirit's doing these amazing things in Jerusalem, and then verse 13 hits us. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they're drunk. Okay? So there's some irony here because um, these amazing things are happening, and then there's sort of the, the critics standing on the sidelines saying, this is really stupid. These people are drunk. They're out of their minds. 
And there's actually an important message here for us, which is that the Spirit's work will always be met with skepticism. And maybe that's you. Maybe in these first two weeks of Acts, when you hear about the miracles, your response is, really? Um, These supernatural things, how seriously do I take them? Uh, For some of you, it's an uncomfortable territory. And actually, I should say probably for all of us, at some point in life, have stopped and, and wondered, okay, wow, this is some, some very fascinating stuff. And so what do we do with that? And there's been a lot of responses. So um, let's just look at the book of Acts because this could be a Bible-wide conversation, but just in Acts, critical scholars say, yep, early followers of Jesus just made it all up so you can just ignore it, put it to the side. Um, naturalism as a worldview, which says what I see is all there is, says, oh, supernatural doesn't exist. Just put it to the side. Okay, then you have the defensive Christians. And they're like, you're uncomfortable with miracles? Don't ask questions. Don't challenge the Bible. You're supposed to blindly believe. Okay, skepticism is from Satan himself. And I think there's flaws in all of those approaches. And here's what we miss. Luke actually invites our skepticism. I wanna take you back to Luke chapter one and remind you of what he said. Do we have a slide for that? We do. He says, first of all, I have investigated everything myself. Okay, if Christians are gonna say we shouldn't have any skepticism, well then Luke is sinning because he's investigated everything carefully, minutely from the beginning Then he's written it into an orderly account, but this is why he wrote it, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke says, examine these Jesus stories closely, see for yourself. And even critical scholars have come to realize, you know, Acts does talk a lot about miracles, but Luke's history is actually very meticulous and surprisingly accurate. And so there's this tension there for critical scholars. For a while, they were attacking the history of Acts, and the more we look into it, the more we realize Luke really did know some things um, that you could only know if you were there. Um, And so I think here's Luke's claim, is that if you're willing to come to these stories honestly and openly, not only can you see Jesus, but you can be changed. And I don't know where, what perspective you're coming at the book of Acts from. You know, this is our first series and we're gonna walk through the book and there's gonna be a lot of miraculous along the way. And I would just invite you uh, to, to ask God even now to start softening your heart. Or maybe your prayer would be, Lord, open my eyes um, to see what's really here. And you don't have to check your skepticism at the door. I think Luke is actually addressing it. And let's look at the last one, back in verse three. The third sign is the fire. And it shows us this new intimacy with God. Verse three says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Okay, what's going on with the fire? This is an interesting one. Well, in the Old Testament, when God shows up, very often there's fire. You have the burning bush. 
You have Mount Sinai where God engulfs the summit in flames. You have God leading Israel through the desert in a pillar of fire. But there's this dilemma with God's presence in the Old Testament. On one hand, you can see him. He manifests in fire and there's a comfort in knowing he's there. But on the other hand, there's a danger and there's a distance. And God even warns his people, don't come any closer because it's not safe for you. And now here in Acts 2, the fire is literally resting on all of them and yet they're not destroyed. So what has changed? What's different from the Old Testament and what's happening here? The difference is Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, why couldn't God, God's people just walt up to the fire? Well, one, they would physically be incinerated. But beyond that, there is a distance because of God's immense purity. Sometimes we use the word holiness and that darkness we were talking about earlier that lives in us. There is a, a distance that needed to be maintained and Jesus steps in the middle as a mediator and he says, I will remove the darkness from you. I will remove the sin. I will take away that gap. And the first time we really see it is here. God's presence comes down as fire and instead of the people having to run for their lives, it rests on them. Almost a contrast with the violent wind. It's almost a peaceful resting on them. And people often say, I just, I want to know that God is with me. I long to know that he's actually here and that his presence is with me. And Acts 2 says, God is closer than your breath. For those who are in Jesus, God doesn't just want to dwell near you. He wants to live in you. And that's what Acts 2 is really all about. And it's not just when we feel it. It's not just when we get goosebumps. But it's a 24-7 objective reality. The Spirit lives in us. And just like the life of Jesus um, empowers us, provides this inner transformation, helps us to find unity in this, this worldwide message that we share with our neighbors near and far. And there's this new intimacy that God is with us. And I wanna just stop by taking you to, I think one of the most beautiful descriptions of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives in Romans chapter eight. And so a lot of people wonder, what does this mean? Christians are always talking about the spirit living in us. What does that really mean? And I want you to listen to God's heart for you. First one, Romans 8.10. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. In other words, our bodies are always breaking down, falling apart discouraging, but there is life inside of you, eternal life for your spirit that is a gift from his spirit. Next one. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is amazing. Did you know that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead? It was his power. Okay, the first verse we just read said, you have eternal life, but your body's breaking down. 
Now this passage says, even though your bodies will break down and you will die, you will have a moment where you breathe your last, the spirit will one day raise you back to life. Both spirit and body are covered by God's powerful spirit. Next one. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Back to the inner transformation. Okay, those habits that you can't kick, those patterns that you feel helpless to change, the things that flow out of you that you hate, the spirit is silently chiseling away at your heart, transforming you into what you are meant to be. And yes, we partner with him, but much of it is his doing. It's more of a surrender than it is a struggle. And while you sleep, while you work, while you read, while you pray, he is doing that. And being aware of it has been one of the most transforming doctrines of my life. Realizing that I can stop trying to change myself, stop trying to do voodoo Christianity where I perform the right ritual and get the desired result, but I realize no, I have been infused with the power that is not my own and that's how I change. All right, next one. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is beautiful. The spirit is your freedom. So whatever happened in your past, whatever mud you've been drugged through, whatever destructive decisions you've made, Um, it will come calling at some point. It will seek to define you. It will seek to drag you back. And the spirit stands in the gap and says, no, this one's free. This one is mine. You don't have to be afraid anymore. That's what the spirit does. That's why we're filled with the spirit. I think we have two more. (laughs) The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children beautiful words. One of the greatest lies that any of us will face is believing that, yes, I came to Jesus, but I've let him down to the point where he's going to let me go. That I've taken one step too far outside of his will, outside of his commands, and he's going to let me go. And listen to what the Spirit does. He whispers to us silently. I don't know, maybe sometimes audibly, No, you belong to him. There is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand. You are his child. He has adopted you. And the fierceness of a father or a mother defending their kid against hostile forces. Okay, what what the spirit does is is just reminds you, no, you, you are loved, you are secure. When you're when you're faced with questioning your identity or your security, the spirit says, Nope, you're safe. I've got you. None can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Not only has God done it, but God reminds us of it. That's what the Spirit does. And then last one. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. In other words, when you don't have the wisdom, when you don't have the words, when you don't have the strength, when you don't have the awareness, when you don't have the solutions, God, the Holy Spirit, is praying on your behalf. Do you realize that? Prayers have been uttered on your behalf for your protection, for your growth. And you were probably sleeping at the time. 
maybe weeping, maybe questioning, and all the time the Spirit is contending for you, working for you. And yet so many of us wonder, why would I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the answer. Why would God use all the bells and whistles when the Spirit comes for the first time? Why are there these miraculous signs? Because look at the gift it is. Look at the gift he is. It's beautiful. So I pray that you carry those truths with you. And as we continue through Acts, the Holy Spirit will not disappear from view. He will show up again and again and again. And each time he does, I invite you to reflect on all that he does, all that he is, all that we've seen this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you came to live among us. And Lord, in Acts, you came to live in us. What a gift. Lord, we've read and we've heard that your spirit speaks in miraculous ways and in quiet ways. And I just, Lord, simply ask that you would be speaking to us. Lord, maybe some have never stopped to consider, um, Lord, that you speak through your word, Lord, but in other profound ways as well, in the, the quiet assurance that we belong to you, in a world just thirsty for identity and belonging and security, Lord, you've put that assurance inside of us through your presence. I pray that we would worship God. I pray that our eyes would be drawn to you and as we ask, what does this mean? Um, we would just have a sense of, of your presence with us, God, and your power in us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Vox, a um, couple quick announcements and then we'll let you go. I know we're a little bit late, but uh, we have, first of all, participation boxes at the doors. And if you would like to give financially to what's happening here, you can do that. Secondly, want to remind you that Carrie will be at the table as you leave um, if you want to hear more about process groups and all that's going on there. And then thirdly is middle school, which, yeah, there they are. I see you. I see you. Um, Wow, a full bow. I love it. We're a very formal group. Um, a lot of them are serving around the, uh, the church, but um, if you noticed last week, we had some pretty incredible donut service uh, provided by our very own middle schoolers. Um, but I wanted to announce that we still need a couple leaders, um, two to three to be precise. And so um, we're having a lunchtime meeting today uh, at noon just down the street. And even if you can't make that after service, just come talk to me if you're at all interested. But uh, we love you guys and we want you to have a mentorship role in the lives of our students and we need a couple more. So if you feel a little tugging at your heart, listen to it, come talk with me and I'll, I'll try to get out by the, the table as well. That being said, um, have a blessed week and we'll see you guys for part three of Acts. I think Carrie's teaching next week, so come back for that. All right, see ya. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.